Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode two in the book of John, titled Jesus, the Lamb of God, where we discuss John chapter one, verses 15 through 34. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are still in the middle of the prologue to John's gospel. We discussed in verses one and two and following how Jesus, the word, was in the beginning with God and that all things are made through him. John introduces him as the Word, and then the Word became flesh in verse 14. But then he's going to expand upon that and really introduce Jesus' ministry. What are we going to find in verses 15 through 34? Well, we're going to really get into uh, the testimony of John the Baptist to Jesus, and uh, we're going to see the, uh, the majesty of the person of Christ, uh, two terms that John the Baptist uses for Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God and the Son of God are so weighty uh, we could spend eternity and will spend eternity really trying to fully comprehend them. Now, in the end of this little section of the prologue, we're going to see uh, some other aspects of what the Apostle John does as he introduces the gospel. All of it, though, tends toward one thing, that we, who are finite in our understanding, finite in our ability to comprehend, that we can have sufficient understanding to, to feed our faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have eternal life in his name. So that's what all of this is about. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 15 through 34. John bore witness about him, that's Jesus. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, 
This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Andy, I want to ask you an overview question. What does John want people to believe about Jesus from this section? Well, John wants the people to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God, and, and that's, that's uh, sharing the same nature. You know, the essence of the mystery of the Trinity is, is something we're going to have to deal with again and again. There is no book of the Bible that so clearly and relentlessly presents Jesus of Nazareth, human being, as God in the flesh, as does the Gospel of John. So we would have to give the same answer again and again in every chapter, every pericope, every section of this Gospel. The Apostle John wants us to understand and believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that if we believe that and believe all of his mission, including his death on the cross, we'll have life in his name. Now in this passage we see the Jewish leaders send people out to question John. Why are they so interested in who John the Baptist is? Well, he was a phenomenon. Uh, he was well-known. He was famous. People from the entire region left what they were doing, their shops, their fields, uh, and came out to hear him preach. He was a prophet and a powerful man of God. And so he was the most important, most significant spiritual thing that had happened in Israel for centuries. And so they wanted to get near him. They wanted to be close to him and listen to him preach. And then when they saw the way he was living, uh, how we have in the in the other Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, for example, that he had uh, a camel's hair uh, garment and he had a, a leather belt around his waist, so he's dressed like Elijah the Tishbite. We get this from Second uh, Kings chapter 1. We have a sense of Elijah's attire. John wore it. He had the same kind of austere lifestyle out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey. He had zero concern for the things that are attractive to most normal men. Uh, he was not living for any of the lusts that drive us. He was serving God. He was a man on fire. Uh, he was a lamp burning and shining, as Jesus would say in chapter 5, John 5. So they were attracted, and they were drawn to that light, and they wanted to hear him. And, and then they would be convicted of their sins, and they would confess their sins uh, to him, and, they would, and he would baptize them in the Jordan River. In verse 15... The Apostle John, talking about John the Baptist, says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So first, what is the word, you know, what does it mean that he bore witness about him? And then what does he say about Jesus, and why is it important that Jesus was before him? Right, this is going to be an important term, and, and most Christians know it about witnessing, that we are called to be witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So the idea is to, to give a testimony, to, to give evidence, to put words toward, toward uh, an unbelieving, let's say, audience to persuade them to believe. Um, so in a court trial to persuade them to believe uh, the point of view. I think every witness wants the, the jury to believe and accept their point of view, their angle, whatever it is. And so it is for us. We want people who hear us to accept our point of view, and that is that Jesus is God, the Savior, believing in him, you'll have eternal life. So John's there doing that kind of ministry. He's bearing witness. Now, what does he say? What he says is astonishing. Uh, if you know the chronology, uh, Elizabeth, his mother, uh, uh, conceived and gave birth to John before 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, conceived and then gave birth to Jesus. And so John was clearly older than Jesus, not by much, because both women were pregnant at the same time. So they're pretty much contemporaries. But John was definitely older than Jesus, and he also began his ministry before Jesus. He preceded Jesus both literally, chronologically, and then in, in his ministry. But he says, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He existed before me. So again, John is... His mind, his heart is being stretched to the limits to try to comprehend the words he's saying, but that Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh, pre-existent, who, who existed in the heavenly realms before he took on a human body. Yeah, I don't want to steal the thunder of a future podcast, but Jesus is later going to say this very provocative statement, before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham was, what, 2100, 1800 years, I forget the chronology, but um, almost two millennia before Jesus chronologically, but Jesus says, before he was, I am. Yeah, Joel, I'm not quite sure what our rate's going to be on these podcasts, but I think that's probably months away. So that's John 8, so I think we're fine. So that's pretty exciting. Before Abraham was born, I am. So the uh, the pre-existence of Jesus and the fact that he's going to say um, to Pontius Pilate at his trial, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Now, who can make a statement like that? This is why I chose to be born. This is the very reason I entered the world. No one else makes a choice to enter the world. We're just born, and then we live. But Jesus made a conscious choice to enter the world. So the, the preexistence of Jesus is what uh, John the Baptist is dealing with here. He who comes after me has surpassed me as a higher rank than I do, because he was before me. Hmm. Verse 16 says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So how does Jesus Christ bring this in grace upon grace? What an incredible verse. And this is the kind of thing you just want to memorize and meditate on. It's literally in the Greek, grace instead of grace. So the, the word, the Greek word anti means in the place of one grace, you get the next grace. So it, it's like you're enjoying a gift of God's grace. And it's like God saying, you haven't seen anything yet. Look at this. And it just keeps coming. You know, like it says in Second Corinthians 3, from glory into glory. And so we go from one state of glory to a, a greater state of glory. Um, it's just amazing. And, and all of it's grace. So we have to understand grace. And grace, as I've defined before, is a subtle determination in the heart of God to do us good. We who deserve uh, to be judged and condemned. And so what good? Well, all manner of good. Some small, some, some great. Nothing's greater than the giving of his only begotten son dead on the cross for our sins. There's nothing greater than that. But he gives us lesser um, displays of grace, like our spiritual gifts or other things that are significant, like adoption to his family, all of that. It's, it's grace upon grace upon grace. So it's just amazing. And he does it from his fullness. He, he is a limitless supp supply of gifts of grace. He's limitless in his determination to do us good. It's a river of gifts one after the other. So I would say anytime you feel down or depressed or discouraged in your life, just go to John 1.16 and read it. From his fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace, or one grace after the, the next. And that will make you happy again, or at least it should. Amen. Now, there seems to be a little contrast here in verse 17 between what Moses brought and what Jesus brought. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right. I think at this point, it's almost like you're bringing Moses in to say effectively the same thing that John would say. Uh, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He's greater. 
or what Jesus will say to the Samaritan woman when she asked, are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well? And it's like, well, look, everybody who drinks Jacob's water will thirst again, but the water I give is better. It's greater. And so Moses, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, it was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is a son over God's house and he rules over it. And the new covenant, as we saw in the, in the podcast in Hebrews, is superior to the old covenant. So the law does what it does, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ does far greater. And so what the law does is it shows us our sins and condemns us for them. That's it. That's what the law does. It shows us what a righteous life is, what a righteous life should be, to love God with all of our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus' summary of the law, that's what the law is. But it doesn't have any power to make us love God or love our neighbor. It doesn't have the power to make us do anything. It just has the power to tell us what we should do and then condemn us when we don't. But Jesus came and brings us grace, and uh, grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. Eternal life comes through Jesus Christ. So uh, it's just a clear contrast of the new covenant versus the old. The old covenant could not save you. Moses could not save you. The law that came through Moses couldn't. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? We're not saying that Moses didn't bring truth. Everything Moses wrote was perfect truth. There's no doubt about it. But the truth that John's speaking of here, I think, really speaks or points to uh, the larger issue of our salvation, our relationship with God, and the, the true nature of God. And um, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. So there's this true knowledge of him. There's a true path, a true light that shines. Jesus will later say, I am the way and the truth and the life. So all of that is just different words of saying at the glowing center of a right relationship with the triune God. That's what truth is who he really is, who we were meant to be, and then all of that came through Jesus Christ. And we also wouldn't say that Moses, there was no grace with Moses either. Certainly God poured out abundant grace through the ministry of the tabernacle, but that was just a forward-looking ministry. It was not, it was never meant to last forever. It was always pointing towards Jesus. Well, let's just quote John Newton here, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. That's the old covenant, new covenant, isn't it? I mean, by the law we fear. By the law, we're condemned and slaughtered and sent to hell. Um, but by, by the gospel, we are rescued from hell. We are, we are redeemed. So it actually is great grace to be slaughtered by the law. It is great grace to read the Ten Commandments and realize you don't keep them. It is, it is tremendous grace from God uh, to be convicted by the law. So you're right. Grace and truth came through Moses, but greater, more grace and more truth came through Jesus. Right, and realized through Jesus, really. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now we're diving into the infinite mystery of the Godhead. Can you explain what John is doing here in verse 18? Well, first I think as I hear the words, no one has ever seen God at any time, no one has seen you, you go back to Moses' encounter with God on the mountain where he says, now show me your glory. And effectively, he gets rebuffed by God. And, and just out of love, you know, where, where you find out in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't handle a full disclosure of the great, you know, the glory of God. Think of a dimmer switch in the, on the, on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus went from like, well, 0% of divine glory to like, I don't know, 3%. You know, just t turned it up a little bit. And they're on their faces. They're terrified. Um, and so we can't handle a full display of the of the glory of God. Uh, no man can see me and live. God said that to Moses. But what's amazing is at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says that his servants will see his face. So we will see the face of God. Now, I don't fully understand that. I don't know how we'll see the face of God 
as it relates to Christ? Is it going to be by looking at Jesus? I don't have a full understanding of how we can see God. Uh, I don't even know if this is the right way to put it, apart from Jesus. Uh, maybe no, that we would never expect to see God the Father apart from Jesus. I don't know. All I know is at this, in this particular way, despite certain verses that seem to imply that, like for example, he says to, to uh, Aaron and Miriam, you know, prophets, I speak to them, you know, through a, a, a dream or a vision. But Moses, I speak to him face to face. Well, but this gives us a fuller understanding. Yeah, but not fully. He doesn't fully speak to Moses face to face. And so the idea is there's a sense of the revelation of Almighty God that never happened in the past. But Jesus is going to do that for us. He's going to enable us to see God face to face. Later in the same gospel, we're going to find that he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So that's interesting too. He says, no one has ever seen God at any time. But the reason that God sent his only begotten son into the world was that he might explain him, reveal him. The Greek is like almost exegete him to unfold his nature to us. Watch how I live. Watch how I interact with this woman or with this man. Watch how I interact with these children. Just watch me live. Watch how I interact with my mother. Watch how I do miracles, how I heal people. And you will understand who God is. Just watch me and you'll see who God is. Well, it's an incredible concept because when you think about that, I mean, the mercy and grace Jesus displays in his ministry. And Jesus says things like, um, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Yeah. So I, I think we've meditated before on the word glory. Glory is the, is the radiant display of the attributes of God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the most perfect display of the attributes and perfections of God there ever has been or ever will be. And so uh, Jesus got, was sent into the world by God the Father for this very reason, to make the Father known. Mm -hmm. Verse 19 gets into the back and forth with John and these people that the Jews had sent to ask him who he was. And they have this dialogue. It says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And then it says this interesting thing. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. So why does it say confessed twice? And then what's the whole thing about did not deny? What is that about? Well, it's almost like a solemn uh, oath type of language here. You know, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, that kind of thing. So uh, John, the apostle John is belaboring the language here to say he is adamantly clear that he was not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. So I, that's about the best I can make. He, he gives a testimony or a confession, not, not like we, we think to confess to a crime. You know, like he confessed, you know, et cetera. He finally confessed under duress, but he confessed. No, it's not like that. He's giving a testimony. He's giving a confession of faith, saying, I am not the Christ. So however great thoughts you may think of me and my ministry, don't think that because that is not true. I am not the Christ. And they ask him a series of follow-up questions, two things which I want to ask you some details about. Are you Elijah? And are you the prophet? So can you explain both of those and why they're significant and why these Jews would think that John is Elijah or the prophet? Right. Well, both of those statements have their roots in, in predictions that were made in the Old Testament that an individual would come later. All right. So Elijah is the first mentioned. And you and I were talking before the podcast about that in, in Malachi. Why don't you say what you were telling me about that? Yeah, so in the, the way we order it in our English Bibles, the last two verses of the Old Testament, he says, the prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children 
and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And so uh, we have this prediction that Elijah is coming. Yeah. And Jesus himself said it, as I, I mentioned to you when we were chatting, you know, coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, remember how it was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And so, hey, he's up in heaven still. <laughs> so the disciples asked him, now, why did they say that, that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, to be sure, Elijah does come. But Elijah has come. By then, John the Baptist had been executed. He'd finished his ministry. And they did to him whatever they wanted. And then they realized he was talking about John the Baptist. So uh, Elijah, uh, but if you look at the Malachi statement, it doesn't say in the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, and so there's a sense of a transferable spirit. The very thing that Elisha asked for when Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, he said, give me a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said to him, what you've asked is difficult, but if you see me go, then you'll get it. If not, you won't. And so uh, remember the, the mantle, the cloak gets left behind as a symbol of the transfer of the spirit and power. And so then he smacks the, the river and walks across just as Elijah and he had done to get to the other side to begin with that day. And he says, where now is the God of Elijah? And so the spirit of Elijah was resting on Elisha. Well, you could imagine the same type of thing with uh, the, the baby of John, of, of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist, that the spirit of Elijah, the demeanor, the attitude, the, the style of ministry. The mouthpiece for the Lord yeah. who is this herald in the desert, this otherworldly figure. Yeah. yeah, but very much like Elijah, same kind of personalities. Um, and so that's what it was. And then the prophet, um, you know, Moses spoke about this in Deuteronomy very clearly. I think Deuteronomy 18. As yeah, I, as 18, I 18. I can quote it. Yeah, go ahead. So he says, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, talking about uh, in, in later days, he says, starts in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then he says again in verse 18, I will raise up, this is God speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Yeah. So I think what you get with that is you're opening up the office of prophet, um, and that got filled by many men. And the words that Moses said there about the prophet would be true of all of those. But the culmination, just as we saw in Hebrews 1 in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, plural, at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is the final word uh, to the human race, not, not chronologically final because the apostles came later. The book of Romans hadn't been written at that point, etc. Um, so there would be later words spoken, but Jesus really is the final word. So Romans and everything Paul wrote and Peter and Jude and all that, you know, those, those are just testimonies, backward-looking testimonies at Jesus, but Jesus is the final word. So he fulfills, finally fulfills the office of the, of the prophet. You know, those three offices that we talk about, prophet, priest, and king, all fulfilled in Jesus. So he is the prophet. John the Baptist was just the last in the series of effectively Old Testament prophets who testified to the one who would come later. Yeah, so I think this helps us understand the cultural milieu of Israel at the time Jesus comes. They're expecting right. a prophet. Right. We know they're also expecting a king. Um, they're not expecting a sacrifice, but all these come together in Amen. Jesus Christ. So perfectly. But what John's saying here is he's not saying he's not a prophet. What he's saying is he's not the prophet. The reason right. that the whole office of prophet was set up to begin with was to point to Jesus. So the Jews then ask him, they say, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say by yourself? So John's answer is, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And so he responds, but he responds with a quote from Isaiah. What does this tell us about his ministry? This is in all the Gospels. Every, every one of the Gospels that talks about John the Baptist uh, quotes Isaiah 40. And so it's quite remarkable um, that, what, seven centuries before John was born, the prophet Isaiah, you know, predicted him. He's one of the few, you know, non-Jesus predictions, like, you know, Josiah and others that were a few that were predicted, or Cyrus the Great. Um, that are predicted uh, by prophets that, that weren't Jesus. And John is, uh, was predicted. And so here's this language, a voice of one calling in the desert, um, make straight in the, in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, it's Isaiah. And so he, he came in and did this leveling uh, work like a, like a road grader. Um, you think about that, every valley raised up and every mountain and hill made low. And so the leveling, you think about in Isaiah 2, in particular, lofty things, stately trading vessels, and lofty trees and mountains represent there, in the symbolic language, human pride. And so John just leveled people. I mean, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. You just get leveled by John if you're an arrogant religionist. But if you're a brokenhearted sinner uh, who thinks that God's grace could never be enough for you and, and you have no hope, um, and, and you come to John and he, he gives you a sense of forgiveness of a possibility of a cleansing from sin. So that's the valley uh, being raised up. And so everything is level and being made ready for Jesus to come. Hmm. Absolutely incredible. Now they, the dialogue continues. He says, they've been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And then John answers them. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So what does he tell us about his baptism? And then what does he also tell us about just the status of where he stands in comparison to Jesus? Sure. All right. First of all, let's talk about the baptism. Um, by my study of the Old Testament, baptism is never found at all or even predicted or, or exemplified in the Old Testament at all. It's true that Naaman the Syrian washed seven times in a river and was cleansed of his leprosy, but that wasn't said to be uh, baptism uh, in the sense of a spiritual symbolic action that signifies, it seems, cleansing from sin. Uh, what we do know is from the intertestamental period that uh, as the Jews have been scattered all over the, the Greek uh, and Roman world, uh, there would be uh, Gentiles who would want to become uh, Jews, and the men had to be circumcised. Uh, the men and women together with their families would have to be washed. You know, there, this wasn't taught in the Bible, but they just wanted, needed to be cleansed of all their Gentile defilements, I guess, etc. Uh, well, along comes John, and he's doing it to Jews. So he's basically saying, you're all outsiders. You're all defiled and, and, and filthy with sin. So that's where it comes from. And so it was a new thing. It was a new thing uh, coming up in the wilderness, this baptism. Now, the word baptize is just the English transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, which means, in context, in every case, immerse. So it means to immerse something in a body of, of liquid, like in a, a vat of dye. 
to immerse a garment, to dye it. If you were going to um, uh, launch a, a ship, you would plunge it down in, etc. It's just immersion. And so that's why we Baptists believe that immersion is the only proper mode for baptism because that's what the word means. It doesn't mean sprinkle. So he's there immersing people in the river as they were confessing their sins. So it was a cleansing uh, symbolism, but it was just water. And John makes it very plain, not here in John's Gospel, but very clear in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I do not deserve to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So that for me, the interpretive key to that statement about the baptism, the water baptism versus Jesus's baptism, is the word fire. If you have a consistent use of the word fire, it is hell. It is judgment. It is the burning up of the chaff, um, whereas the wheat is gathered into the barn. So Jesus, let's take the word immerse, he immerses you in fire. That must be hell. He has that power to send you to hell, to immerse you to hell. What then would be the immersion in the Holy Spirit? Well, we Christians, we really believe that that's salvation, that by the Spirit we know who Jesus is. By the Spirit we're transformed, the heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh put in. We're transformed in our nature, cleansed of all of our sins. We're baptized with the washing with water through the word you know, etc. And Titus talks about um, he saved us not because of good works we have done, but because of the baptism through the Spirit. It's a spiritual baptism. And so the idea there is that Jesus, and this is why I think the and is a little difficult, and it's a weak part of my exegesis, but I still think it's helpful. Jesus is speaking to a mixed group. There's wheat and tares mixed in. And he's saying to all of them as a group, uh, John is saying that, I'm sorry, John is saying he, Jesus, will either immerse you in the Holy Spirit for your salvation, or he will immerse you in the lake of fire. Damnation. He's either going to save you or damn you. That's how great Jesus is. The water baptism I, I do, it's just symbolic. That's the real baptism. He will either immerse you in the Holy Spirit to save your souls, or he will immerse you at the end of all time on Judgment Day. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. It's just an awesome thing. He just has a sense of, of essential, ontological inferiority. He is a creature. Jesus is the creator. So I don't deserve to touch him. I don't deserve to be near him. He is the holy, holy, holy God who sits on a throne and the seraphim are covering their faces. Um, that's who Jesus is. And when he became incarnate, then having a human body, that's just part of his holy person. I don't deserve to even touch his shoes. So that's yeah. what John's saying. There's an incredible humility to John here. And I think it would be really good for all of us, for those that are listening to this podcast, to ask God, humble me in front of Jesus. Have, help me to have a, a greater sense of the infinite greatness and majesty of Christ. The next verse, verse 29, is I think one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. And that is, he's, John writes, The next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hmm. That's, That's a awesome. deep verse. Let's yeah. pick it apart. First, behold the Lamb of God. What do these words teach us about the kind of person Jesus is? Well, first of all, it was, it was possible to do it physically that day. If you had been standing with John by the Jordan River, you could picture him pointing with his finger at Jesus, who had come to be baptized. Um, 
uh, by John. And he pointed to him. And, and so he had earlier said, one stands among you whose sandals I do not deserve. But now he's pointing at him. He's saying, look at him. Behold him. Now, we who live centuries later cannot do it physically. We can only do it by faith in the scriptures. As we look, we can see Jesus, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, publicly portrayed as crucified. We can see it in the scriptures. So that word behold, I think for us now, means behold by faith. And what are we to behold? What are we to see when we look at Jesus? Well, look at the statement, behold the Lamb of God. Now, the word lamb would immediately conjure up images of the animal sacrificial system. And that brings us to the lessons that we learned from the, from the book of Hebrews, how the animal sacrificial system was established from the very beginning of redemptive history, when Cain and Abel were alive. And Abel brought, brought animal sacrifices, and how even before that, God had, had covered the nakedness of their parents with animal skins. And so it seems like animal sacrifice was established at the very beginning. Noah offered clean animals after the flood. And then Abraham was clearly setting up altars and offering up animal sacrifice. And then it got codified in the laws of Moses. It was the, the essence of the Jewish religious system. Passover, the lamb, was slaughtered to rescue them from the angel of death on the 10th plague. When the angel passed over and saw the blood of the lamb painted on the doorposts and the cross of the lintel, uh, he saw the blood and passed over and did not kill the firstborn of Israel. And so the idea of substitutionary atonement of an animal dying, its blood being poured out, teaches those three great lessons that all sin deserves the death penalty. The death penalty cannot be, uh, that the three great lessons of the animal sacrificial system that all sin deserves the death penalty. The death penalty can be paid by a substitute, but as the book of Hebrews made it plain, the substitute cannot be an animal. Just waiting for a moment like this, waiting for this moment, when this is not an animal. This is not something inferior. We're worth more than many sheep. We're worth more than many sparrows, Jesus said. We're ontologically, essentially superior to animals. So therefore, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away human sin. It was just symbolic. But along comes Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who's ontologically essentially higher than us, whose sandals none of us deserves to, to untie. And John points at him and says, Behold, now here is the fulfillment of the animal sacrificial system. Let me say one more thing, and then you can ask some more questions. We talk some more. Remember that great moment in the Old Testament where God tested Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice in the place where I'll show you. And he went, and as they're going up, this young boy says, Here's the wood and the fire, but where is the sacrifice? Where is the, really, where's the lamb? And that really is the question of the Old Testament. If the blood of bulls and goats cannot really take away human sin, then where is the sacrifice? The Old Testament was waiting. It was like table setting, waiting for the meal, waiting for the feast. And now the moment has come. Finally, the Lamb of God has come. And John said he takes away the sin of the world. Now, you mentioned that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Right. So how does Jesus take away sin? Well, here, this brings us to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where you have a blood sacrifice where, you know, uh, I think there's two animals. One of the animals, it, it's sacrifice, its blood is poured out. But the other is uh, called frequently the scapegoat. And the priest would confess the sins onto the head of the scapegoat. He'd put his hands on it and confess and put the sins of the people 
on the animal. And the animal is taken a, 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 a long distance away, very, very far away from the camp where the Jews were and was released. So it's the picture of a separation being made between us and our sins. Our sins have been taken away from us and put in some distant location. Now it's very important to understand the sins don't actually cease to exist. God himself cannot and will not cause the sins to cease to exist. They happened. He's omniscient. Even if he spoke the entire universe out of existence, he would know that those sins existed. So what he has chosen to do is atone for or cover our sins and gives us a sense of relief by separating them from us as far as the east is from the west. That's one way the psalmist puts it, or he throws our sins in the depths of the sea. There's a separation made between us and our sins so that we are not burdened by them anymore. So I think of it this way, that because of the atoning work of Jesus, it's as though we never sinned and that our relationship with God is in no way hindered by the fact that we've sinned. We can have a wholehearted, loving, perfect relationship with God, even as redeemed sinners. So that's what it means to mean, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Now, of the world, uh, that's going to bring us right to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There is one Savior for the entire human race. Uh, this is not teaching that every single individual member of the human race will in fact be saved. We know that they won't. But what it does mean is that there is only one provision for the whole world. Yeah, amen. Now John talks again about his testimony. He says, this is he, Jesus, of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And then he talks about how he knows that this is Jesus. He says, I did not recognize him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John bore witness again, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So how does John know for sure that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Because that's his confession. I didn't read it. It's the last verse. He says, I've borne witness that this is yeah. the Son well, of God. Well, that's where we're going. And we know that, and we've said it already many times, even in this very podcast today, is the point is that we would come to understand that Jesus is God, that he is God in the flesh, the Son of God. All right, so here's, here's the thing. No human being could ever know that except that it's revealed. It has to be revealed. So you have this in, in Matthew 16 where he's in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And, and they give different answers. What about you? And you get the feeling they're all kind of silent for a moment. And then Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So the Father reveals the Son to sinners, and he does that invariably through the Holy Spirit. So the first and third person, persons of the Trinity are determined that the elect in the world, the unconverted elect, would come to know who Jesus is. For apart from that, we cannot be saved. But we would never know him if it weren't for the working of the Holy Spirit at the command of the Father. And so the Father dispatches the Spirit to teach us who Jesus is. And then interestingly, then Jesus reveals the Father to us and teaches us who the Father is. So there's an inter-Trinitarian work going on here. But this is why I've said from the pulpit, and I'll keep on saying it, 
and I don't think it's heretical, though it may to some people be shocking. But I don't mind shocking them out of some faulty uh, understandings. And that is that you, if you are a Christian, owe your salvation as much to the Holy Spirit as you do to Jesus. Because if it weren't for the Spirit, you wouldn't think anything about Jesus. You wouldn't know anything, believe anything, or understanding anything about him. And therefore, his atoning work would do you no good at all. And that's the way it is for most of the people in the world. They don't know Jesus, and they're walking in the darkness. But specifically, even John saying, I wouldn't have known him. I would never have imagined. Because he had no beauty or majesty to attract us uh, to him. Nothing in his appearance. He looked like an ordinary person. But God the Father gave John sufficient symbols and communications to let him know who Jesus was, which specific person in the crowd he was, and then what he had come to do, who he was essentially and what he had come to do. And I, you mentioned the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. I've heard you talk about this often, the unity of purpose in the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actively working in all things and, yeah. and doing their respective roles his respective role. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so easy for our minds to just float away from things. I've found that recently I've been, uh, I've been emphasizing the Holy Spirit too much over against the Father. But it was that Matthew 16 thing that kept me nailed to this thing. The Father revealed Jesus. Jesus said that. The flesh and blood has not revealed you, but my Father did. Which is very interesting because in the passage we talk about today, the Son is the one who reveals the Father. Yeah. So uh, absolutely, the Spirit doesn't do anything apart from the Son and the Father. But there's this revelation. And let's just zero in on the issue of the revelation. Without revelation, we will never believe in Jesus. We have to have a supernatural revelation of Christ in the heart, what Jonathan Edwards um, called a divine and supernatural light directly imparted to the soul. All right. We see this, I think, very plainly. If you know what to look for. You can see it in the thief on the cross, all right? He's dead. He's lost, spiritually dead, right? Reviling Jesus. Then suddenly the light goes on, and all of a sudden he starts saying right things, orthodox, true things about Jesus. Based on what? Based on what new information? New miracle Jesus did? No, Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. Based on what? The Father must have revealed the Son to the thief, the dying thief on the cross. It's incredible, and just in time, too. Let's finish this podcast by talking about John's confession at the end, that this is the Son of God. We've already talked about that he wants us to believe Jesus is the Son of God. But I just want to ask you about what does it mean that God has a Son and that his name is Jesus? What does it teach us about the Trinity? What does it teach us about how God relates to us? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to even answer it. I, I think these, the language of Father, Son, these things we learn and know before we understand the Trinity or theology. Uh, in a normal family, you know who your dad, your daddy is, you know, your dada or Abba or whatever language, whatever you say, you know, your mom first. And, and then you just learn relationships. And this is the primary human relationship symbol that, that God wants us to think of when we think of the relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity, Father, Son. You know, the more common would be like a husband-wife kind of picture or some other thing, but that's what we have. We have this father-son relationship, and it's, it's, it's infinite in its, uh, in its significance and meaning. I, I can't fully understand it. I know what my relationship with my father was like. I know what my relationship with my son is like. I can sense uh, certain types of feelings of love and affection, loyalty and pride and things that come on. Every father, you've got sons, and, you know, you get that feeling. So there's some aspect of that the father wants us to think of when we think of his relationship uh, to his son. 
but he is the Son of God. But I think it's important for us also to understand with the doctrine of the Trinity that it's, it's helpful to say God the Son. So it's almost like first and foremost, he's God, and then secondly, the, the officer, the person, so to speak, the Son. So Jesus is God, always has been God. He was he's not honorary God like some people get an honorary doctorate. He always has been and always will be truly God. But he's God the Son. And so that's when, when John says it, he says, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. I, I, I know he didn't fully understand because, you know, later when he's arrested and he's about to be executed for preaching against Herod, taking his brother's wife and all that, he was wavering, John was. And he said, he sent messengers to Jesus because things weren't going along as he thought they should, I guess. He, he had a better idea of what the mission of the Messiah should be. And he said messengers saying, should we expect someone else? Um, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And you're like, wait a minute, John. Someone else other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the Son of God who descended, you know, the Holy Spirit descended and remained on someone other than that. And so clearly a moment of weakness. So even John, who said the words, still at the end of his life is still trying to comprehend them and wrestle with them. He knows now. Yeah, he knows now. <laughs> Well, that was episode two in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode three, which is titled, Come and See Jesus, from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.